0: Well, here's the moment you've all been waiting for. Come on, Katie. Let's... I'm feeling decidedly outnumbered this morning. What with being made to get up and dance and then having to admit to the fact I rehearse in front of my dog. <laughs> Come on, guys. Anyway, we are here. Today to speak about Sarai or Sarah, and we are following on in our series of heroes and this morning we come to an heroine of faith and I was quite excited to carry on from where Barry left off last week because Sarah or Sarai you might gather is someone who I am quite passionate about, and the reason I had to rehearse in front of my dog was to try and get this down to twenty minutes for you so that is the first thing. Why am I passionate about Sarah? I'm passionate because she was the first sort of matriarch. She was the mother of the hair of the covenant. And in every sense, whilst we look at the story of Abraham, she physically carried it inside her. And I think she's a remarkable, remarkable woman. And I think there's something as Sarah has been taught and understood that has perhaps done her a bit of a disservice I don't know what levels of knowledge there are about the story of Sarah, but she's quite often portrayed as a lady who is just a weak wife of Abraham, that she's lacking in faith, that she's impatient and laughs at God, and that she tries to take matters into her own hands. And that's not an incorrect interpretation of scripture at all, but that is one view of how we could look at it. And what I want to try and do this morning is rather than preach at you a view, I hope you're going to journey with me through the scriptures and we're going to look at them together. And hopefully at the end, we're going to look at some different ways of viewing Sarah so that at the end, you might have your own questions and perhaps some views that have been changed about her. And so my prayer this morning is if you don't know who Sarah is and she's not even on your biblical map, that this morning puts her there for you that if perhaps you know a little bit about Sarah, it intrigues you to go back and read more. And perhaps if you think you've got her completely sussed out, it just gives you a broadening view of who she is as a person. Now, we do have to try and fit this into 20 minutes. So what I have done is I have created some slides with the verses that we're going to look at from Genesis. It is written as a narrative And so I have broken Sarah's story down into scenes. So again, it's a bit of a journey we're going to go on this morning. If you would like to follow it in your Bibles, it's page 10, and we're going to be starting at Genesis 11. But please don't worry if you can't follow because it will be up on the screen. Okay, let's get started. So scene one, who was Sarai? And in Genesis 11, this is where we first get an introduction to her. We are told that she was Abram's wife, Sarai. There's a name change in there. And we also were told that Sarai was childless. She was barren. That's quite an interesting introduction to somebody in the Old Testament, you might recall that lots of people they are given they are wife of or their brother to or where they come from or their city. We are given nothing on Sarah here. All we know is that she is the wife of Abraham and she's barren. And in the context that she would have been growing up in, that basically means she's got no past. We've got nothing to anchor her to. And because of her being female and barren, She's also got no future. And it's quite interesting that the narrator really does tease out of this. They want this clear in the reader's minds. Her only hope is Abraham. And we are looking at Sarah today, but it would be incorrect if we didn't touch on Abraham in the same way that Barry touched on Sarah last week. Because the two stories are so interwoven, they were husband and wife after all. And so we're going to start the next bit looking at the initial call when God visits Abraham and start to reveal bits of information about this covenant with him that he's going to be making. And he says, I will bless you. This is God speaking. I will make your name great and people will be blessed through you. And it's interesting to note the context here that this was given. This is a message given from God to Abraham. And if we consider that with Sarah, Sarah isn't present, we assume, when this is given. But there's also no mention of Sarah's role in this covenantal promise. And this theme continues. Oh, wrong way. Hang on. This theme continues. And again, God reveals to Abraham the promise And he says, to your offspring, I will give the land. Now, us with our Western minds today, we can kind of assume that, well, Abraham was married to Sarah, or Sarah at this stage, and offspring, therefore, would naturally come through Sarah. Okay. But what the narrator does here is it leaves this element of suspense. We know there's going to be offspring, but equally the narrator has made very, very clear that his wife is barren. So who's it going to come through? Who is this child? You know, it sort of takes two to tango. Who's going to be the second one? Because the narrator's made clear it's not going to be Sarah at this stage. We then move on to what I've called scene three, an Egyptian pharaoh. And they've been on a journey together. They have been traveling and they arrive in Egypt. And Abraham realizes he's on a bit of unknown territory here. And he says to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And when you go back to the original translation of this, beauty is not just in a sense of attractiveness. It's the same word of beautiful that's used to describe David. And so it's a holiness about her. There's just a presence about her that almost transcends beauty. And Abraham says, I know this. And he also knows that because of this, when Pharaoh sees Sarah, he's probably going to want her. Again, think of the context of this and the role of women. And so he says, you need to pretend to be my sister. And in that sense, I will be treated well. Pharaoh can take you and it will all be okay. Okay. Now, Abraham wasn't really lying at this point. If we go back into Genesis, we do learn that Sarah was, in fact, his half-sister. So to say he's lying is perhaps doing Abraham a disservice. But it's quite interesting that already in this stage, Abraham has sort of dictated the outcome of Sarah before she's even had a say in it. He's already made a decision about her fate. And there's not really any suggestion in this dialogue that Abraham has any concerns for his wife's well-being. I will be treated well for your sake. My life will be spared because of you. It's an interesting view that he has of his wife. And sure enough, this scene continues to play out. And when Pharaoh's officials see Sarah, they praise her and Pharaoh takes her as his wife. Now, because of this generosity, Abraham at this point becomes wealthier. And we learn here that he acquires sheep and cattle amongst other things. But also he acquires male and female servants. And if we're going through this this morning as a bit of a story, I'd like you all just to park that thought in the back of your mind that at this point, because of Sarah being handed over, Abraham is almost rewarded with female Egyptian servants. I wonder what Sarah thought about all of this. She hasn't really said much, has she? And eventually it, it comes out that Sarah isn't who Abraham has said she is. She is in fact his wife. And Pharaoh is particularly disgusted at this. If when we look at the the dialogue between them, he doesn't really give Abraham a chance to respond or defend himself. He just says, you know, why have you done this to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh recognizes her role as a wife and how important that is. And so with this, Abraham takes his wife back, and everything that he had. And that would have included the cattle and the slaves and everybody else whom Pharaoh gave to him. Okay. We then have another scene where the covenantal promise is given to Abraham. But there's a, it's an interesting dialogue that goes on here. We see this in Genesis 15. God speaks to Abraham and Abraham's response is, Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And I've highlighted again in red, he reiterates, you've given me no children. There's a suggestion here that perhaps this is actually becoming a bit of a burden to Abraham. He was a man of faith, but even he wasn't sort of seeing the goods delivered. And then the Lord responds and says, this man will not be your heir, because Abraham is assuming it's going to come through somebody else. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your hair. Again, looking at this and building up this picture, this is another example where we assume Sarah wasn't present when the promise was given. Sarah is not mentioned. Again, the reiteration is that the son or the next hair will come from Abraham, but we still don't know who the other person is. Sarah's situation, it hasn't changed. She's still barren. And then the plot thickens. For me, I think scene five is about the lowest point in the story in this narrative of Abraham and Sarah. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne born him no children but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And so she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave and perhaps I can build a family through her. And a common interpretation of this is that she lacked faith in God. She didn't believe that It was going to come true, she was impatient, she lacked faith and she took matters into her own hands. She tried to take control of a situation in a humanly sense. And I don't think we could blame her for doing that. You know, you sense this desperation here. But I'm gonna put something else out there today that is going to challenge that view. And this is why I encourage you all to go back to the scriptures and read it for yourselves and see what conclusions you draw out of it. Because potentially Abraham has never told her about the discussions between he and God about the promise. There is also the context that because of the culture, the husbands would have passed on the information to their wives automatically. If that had been the case, Sarah would have got the knowledge third hand But given that all the conversations in this narrative are documented so precisely, it would be unusual for the narrator to have left this out, had Abraham said that to Sarah and told him about it. And also when we look at Sarah's response, he says, the Lord has kept me from having children. These aren't the words of a woman who is lacking in faith. This is a woman who is desperate and her prayers to her loving God have not been answered. She still believes God is in there somewhere. And so she says, go sleep with my slave and perhaps I can build a family through her. Sarah's view on this is still very much sort of within the the family nucleus view. She just wants a child. She just wants her husband to have the joy of holding a baby and yet we know that from Abraham, what God has told Abraham, he's got a view of offspring that go into nations and all the world and will be hares. He, his view is much bigger. And if Sarah really understood that, would all she really be wanting is just a family? Okay. There's also to note that the slave she hands over to Abraham is Egyptian. It is highly possible that the slave she hands to Abraham was one of the slaves they picked up from their time with Pharaoh. Now that to me, that's an act of desperation because this is not only a woman who is a slave and Sarah admits she's barren, but she hands to her husband a woman who they acquired at a very dark point in her life. And then we have this story that Hagar is given to Abraham. He sleeps with her and she conceives. And for Sarai, I think that must have been devastating. I wonder if she regretted it the moment she did it. We don't know that in the scripture. I'm just trying to perhaps bring out a person behind the text here that has her own story to tell. And understandably, this has an impact on her and Hagar's relationship here on in. I don't think anybody could imagine their relationship would have ever stayed the same. And in the scriptures, I haven't got this slide up here, but I think it's in Genesis 15 or 16. We see that Hagar starts despising Sarah or Sarai. Now this despises another way of translating the original language is also to say that she started tormenting and teasing Sarai. She knew she had one up on her. And whether that is in a physical sense or just, it it was too much of a tease to see it for Sarah, we don't know. And so in this situation, Sarai, she turns to her husband for help. And she says, you know, I need you to step in here. And Abraham basically turns round and he says, your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think is best. And then Sarah mistreated Hagar. And again, this is another conception that I just want to challenge here a little bit. There is this assumption that she is cruel, but perhaps the desperation that she feels has now turned destructive. This is a very broken person. And it's really, really sad from both points of view. There is Sarah, there is Hagar, and we've got two women One who suffers deeply, the pain of childlessness and the other who suffers because of the childless woman's desperation. And that for me is why I think this is the lowest point in this narrative. And Hagar flees. Scene six, Sarai to Sarah, are you all with me so far? good <laughs> we then come back to abraham and this visitation and god says to him again this is my covenant with you you will be the father of many nations no longer will you be called abram your name will be abraham for i have made you a father of many and that's you know it's revealing a little bit more of the covenantal promise to abraham but it's interesting that in this bit, it continues. God also said to Abraham. He adds on a little bit more that says, this isn't going to be just about you. As for Sarai, your wife, you will no longer call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. And in the Hebrew, Sarah also means princess, royalty, hair. Hallelujah, she's finally part of the story. And he says, God says, I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. There's the missing bit of the story. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. This is promise. Suddenly we know who this, this mystery person is that the narrator has built up in our minds. And gosh, what an amazing promise that is for Sarah. And how does Abraham respond to this? He falls face down and laughs. And he doesn't just laugh. He, uh, his own you know, limited view of this, he says, but will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Oh, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Now, Ishmael is the son of Hagar, so we know at this point, the boy has been born. and I feel a bit sorry for Sarah at this point because he doesn't have any delight at his aunt, wife's answer to prayer. He laughs at it. And in fact, you almost ask God, look, just bypass Sarah. Can't you just give the blessings to Ishmael? And it's interesting that Abraham's laughter is often interpreted as being justified. And yet when we get to Sarah's laughter, it's interpreted as a time of lack of moral standing. But God comes back at this and he says, well, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son. I hear what you're saying and I hear what has happened, but it is through Sarah. And he reiterates that again at the end. Sarah will bear the boy to you by this time next year, Genesis 17. And now we get to the scene where Sarah laughs, which is the scene that Barry touched on last week. And before we go into this scene, I'd just like to, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, I think it's about the Genesis 18 point, but to set a scene in the context that this laughter happens. Okay, so they are out in the desert. These are a nomadic group of people. They've got tents. And if I recall correctly, they are told it's the height of day. It's noon. It's hot. Okay, you kind of imagine the scene now. Abraham, we are told, I think is relaxing by the entrance to his tent. The women are inside. And if you've ever been to sort of Egypt or anywhere like that, the tempo really does slow down at midday in this heat. And these visitors head towards the tent. And Abraham sees them and he goes off to meet them. And he recognises that there is something holy about these messengers. Okay. And he runs back into the tent. That's where Sarah is. And he says to her, you know, we've got visitors quickly, make some food up, make some bread and get it ready. And he runs back out of the tent. Okay. Now notice here, Sarah has no idea who these visitors are. hospitality at the time is such that being told just to suddenly whip up some food and make fresh bread was not unexpected. Sarah doesn't really have anything untoward to question about these visitors. Her husband is important. He possibly had many important visitors. Okay. And then Abraham goes back out and while they ate, this is the visitors, he stood them under a tree. Okay. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. Oh, she, she's there in the tent, he said. And then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old. Sarah was past the age of childbearing, and so she laughed to herself as she thought. I've got these pictures up here at the moment, apologies if they're not that clear, but it sort of gives you an idea of the context of Sarah's laugh. I quite like the bo- the bottom one on the right. She's like, they just said, what? Who are these people? What on earth do they even know anything about my situation? And her thoughts are, Quite rational, it says here, Sarah was past the age of childbearing. Her menstrual cycle had stopped. She is old and she laughs to herself. She says, you know, I'm worn out, probably emotionally, physically. (laughs) Okay, whatever. You know, and my Lord is old. Will I now have this pleasure? There's a little interesting insight here to perhaps their husband, wife, the intimacy they have. There's a suggestion here that they're not even intimate with each other anymore, let alone the prospect of having a child. And she laughs. And then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old. And again, it's not incorrect to interpret this, that Sarah lacked faith. That At this point, she goes, yeah, okay. Whatever, you know, my prayers haven't been answered to now. But actually, once Sarah sees that these people are speaking on behalf of the Lord, she lies and she says, I did not laugh. This woman who up till now has been silent in this narrative suddenly finds her voice. And if you were afraid of somebody, surely she should have stayed in the tent And not come out and go, let my husband deal with that one. I'm not having anything to do with that. But she doesn't. What Sarah does here is she dramatically interrupts, making her presence known and feebly attempts to protect Abraham. I wonder now if she realizes that these people are of God. And did she actually step out in faith, not lack of faith? Not through fear of them, but she realized that here was the chance for her prayers to get answered. Ah, Yes, but it says here in the script that, you know, Sarah was afraid. So where does that fit into it? If we look at the next line, it says, but he said, yes, you did laugh. Where God has spoken previously in this narrative, it always says the Lord said to Abraham, the Lord said, the Lord revealed, the Lord came too. This is just he said. And sort of the semantics in the original translation could possibly be that this was Abraham who said, yes, you did laugh. In which case, it could possibly be that Sarah holds faith in God and steps out. Recognizing who it is, and this is the chance that the prayers and the faith that she has held on to could be answered. And actually it's Abraham who she's possibly afraid of, and his response. Like I said, it's a challenging text this morning, and I do encourage you to go away and revisit the story for yourselves. We now come to Ablimach. And we're going to touch on this very quickly and recap because at the moment we now have the full picture of the covenantal promise. We know it's going to come through Abraham. We know it's going to come through Sarah. Sarah has now also heard it first hand. Okay, we've moved on. And now they're in a different region. And again, Abraham says of his wife, Sarah, this is my sister. And Abimelech takes her, what? I can't get this bit. You know, you think that they both know that Sarah is potentially fertile at this point. And yet he offers his wife up again. Does he have any idea that the compromise of this promise that could happen? And thankfully God steps in. This time, and he he comes to Abraham, and again go back to the scriptures, and he says, "No, you can't touch Sarah. You can't take her for your wife. Even God sees that this cannot go on. This is dangerous territory here." And Pharaoh comes back and he says, this is, this is your wife. You know, I don't want anything to do with it. But it's interesting that Sarah, now Sarah, who has found her voice, who have stood up for herself, who has confronted God, who has heard the news firsthand, is now addressed by a He addresses her specifically as a person in her own right. And to Sarah, he says, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels. You are completely vindicated. Suddenly Sarah's got recognition in all of this. The story continues and Isaac is born. And Sarah became pregnant and bore a son. In her old age, her prayers and her patience and her faith and everything that has gone on before has paid off. This is an interesting line. Sarah now has full revelation of everything. She can see the full picture. And she turns around to Abraham and says, get rid of that slave woman and her son. That woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son. They're pretty harsh words, aren't they? This is a woman, she's a baby. And again, it would be right to say that these are harsh words and to potentially judge Sarah by them. But perhaps now she gets it. She sees the importance and has to make some pretty hard line decisions. And Abraham, he's sort of, he's caught in a bit of a difficult situation there. He's like, "Mm, I've got Sarah, I've got Isaac, I've got Hagar, I've got Ishmael. What do I do here? What's the right thing? And God steps in and he says, listen to whatever Sarah tells you. Sarai, Sarah, she gets it. She understands the will of God and God says, do whatever, listen to whatever Sarah tells you. Isn't that a turn of events for a woman who supposedly has no faith and lack of moral conviction? God says, listen to what she says. And that's all we really have on Sarah and her life and where she fits into it all and then she dies. But even in death, Sarah plays a huge part in a covenantal promise. It says that Abraham goes and he mourns and he weeps over her. Again, in the context, that was what you did when people died. You mourn and you weep and there was a grieving process. But I wonder actually if there was a little bit of realising what he had in this beautiful, holy woman of faith who he was married to. That she's now gone. And afterward, Abraham buries Sarah in the cave, in the land of Canaan. And so the field and cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. We read earlier in the scriptures that part of the covenantal promise is that Abraham would have the land of Canaan. And in terms of scripture, this is the first time Abraham ever legally owns land in Canaan that part of the promise starting to come through and it is because of Sarah, even in her death. It's an interesting twist, I think. Right, 20 minutes in. (laughs) What can we learn from Sarah? And I think we can learn that there is a lesson in there of lack of faith and perseverance and not taking the promise and God into our own hands. I think there is absolutely a lesson there. And I think in the context of that, you could do a sermon on that. You know, They have been done many, many times before. But from the scripture studies that we have done today and looking at things and questioning it, I also want to suggest that a message we can get from Sarah is don't judge people's walk with God And last week I was speaking to somebody and it was reminded of, you know, our lives, they can look a bit like tapestries. And when you do a tapestry on the back, there's knots and it's messy and there's threads and they interlink and bits have been cut off. And that's sometimes like our lives that we can see. It feels a little bit like the back of the tapestry, a bit like Sarah's life. You know, why would you offer Hagar? You've you've gone off at a tangent. You've done the wrong thing. But there's a lesson in there that we can't judge people's walks with God because actually we don't know what God has said to them and we don't know what God hasn't said to them yet. And perhaps in the truth of our journeys of faith, we just have more revelation than other people, but that doesn't make them wrong. We need to journey with people and understand that. Because that's what God sees on the other side. He sees the full picture. He sees how it's going to work out at the end. And perhaps if our lives feel or we look a little bit like the back of a tapestry, we need to hold on to that. And I would suggest that is how we also need to remember other people's lives. Amen. There we go.